pray together, shall we? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, as we began to talk about last week, we pray even so, come Lord Jesus. Turn our hearts toward you and to your return. Help us to be the best that we can be for you and by you, but help us to live for the day of your appearing. And we, we say, come, Lord Jesus. You, your return is the hope that we have, the blessed hope, the expectation of the day when everything will be set right. Help us to please you by the way we live as we wait for that day to come. We pray especially as we delve into these six dynamics over the next few weeks of why God's people come to church. Help us, Father, to understand. I, I, I know we know these things. They've been taught over and over and over, but help us to understand the, the depth of these things, the power of the anointing when we really begin to wrap our minds around what these things mean. We ask for your help and grace, and uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why God's people come to church? Now, I'm going to say this. I, this, I think, may be the last time I say it, although, you know, six parts, it could come up again. I just want to be sure that you understand, when we say this is uh, the importance of God's people coming to church, I'm walking a fine line here because I don't want to imply that these things can't happen if you're part of our live stream congregation. Some of you live far enough away. We have people in several states and you can't be here every time, you know, the doors are open. We understand that. But we also have people in different states, but also right here in Columbia that are unable uh, for physical reasons to come out to church. And uh, some are still have concerns because of their physical condition about COVID or just the atmosphere in general. Please understand, this is not, uh, as we wrap up, why uh, God's people come to church as we wrap up our fullness series, this is not a last attempt to say, you know, get in church. We know that you are in church with us. I do encourage you, if you're able to be in church and just aren't, I think that would be a good thing for you to do. But we, we will continue to love and serve and honor those that are part of our live stream congregation as well, because we know there are good reasons that uh, a lot of people aren't able to come to church, be together. So we mean it in the broad sense when we say, when God's people come to church, why God's people gather. Um, sometimes it's in a small group. Sometimes it's in a house church. Sometimes it's online. But we're seeing more and more people begin to come back uh, to the house of God. So we welcome you if you're on live stream here in the, the sanctuary over in Brown Chapel. Let's talk about why God's people come to church. Now, you know we talked about the, an introduction uh, to this 
where we talked about the need to, to come together in spirit and truth. And we even said there were times the Lord said, it's better for you to not come. Um, I, that was not given to us as a, well, I've got a bad attitude. I might as well stay home. No, that's not what that was about. He was just saying, it's not only important for you to uh, worship me, but it's important for you to come the right way. Uh, come to church, it's important for you to come the right way. And never forget, Jesus has not given up on the church. Now, I think this is the last time I'll say all of this. Remember the first time he turned over the tables and drove the money changers out? Um, the disciples, the Holy Spirit took their mind to this. Then they remembered the scripture had said, the zeal for your house has consumed me. So Jesus wasn't mad about A, B, or C. He was upset because of his great passion for what can happen when God's people come together. And he was upset with those money changers and with those religious leaders who were making it difficult for people to come to the Father. That's how much he wants you to come to him. He, he really gets upset with people that make it difficult for other people to come. So let's just leave it there and we'll go ahead and uh, read our text. Matthew, your notes say Matthew 18. While I was praying, I looked up Matthew 18, 16 to 20 and couldn't remember why I wanted that verse and why it felt so important. Um, but I knew that I felt it passionately and I read it and read it and reread it. And then when I read my notes, I realized, oh, this is Matthew 28, not Matthew 18. So mystery of the kingdom solved. It's Matthew 28, not verse, uh, or chapter 18, 28 verses uh, 16 to 20. Jesus has been resurrected. He's getting ready to go to heaven. It's the end of Matthew's gospel. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated to them. Now here's the emphasis for our message today. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some were doubtful. Now, guys, if, if I were trying to train my disciples, I'm mean, just, just trying to help. If I was training my disciples and I had performed all those miracles and had been raised from the dead, and you know, the the New Testament says that Jesus proved himself alive by infallible proofs. I mean, it's a no-brainer. He was raised from the dead. And then I called my disciples together, and some worshiped and some were doubtful. I'd have blown a whistle. I'd have said, come here, let's try this one more time. But the beautiful thing about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is we know it's going to win. And at the same time we know it's going to win, we are a work in progress. We are like the man <laughs> um, that uh, brought his demonized son to Jesus. He said, Lord, I brought my son to your disciples, but they could not help him. And a lot of times we bring people to church. They don't get the help they need because we bring them to church instead of to Jesus. But he, he, Jesus said... All things are possible to the one who believes. All things are possible. And this man said, Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I'm struggling with this. And that tells me that even when we come together in church, there are those that have settled the issue. 
I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. Uh, unto him who's able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think. You've got people like that, but you've also got people like the man I just talked about that were, that were wobbling between two worlds. Um, you've got some people that are just doubtful. You know, even the best people, are you hearing me? The best people in church have moments where they're struggling with faith. You know, we talk about doubting Thomas, and when I did the, the series on the 12 apostles, I talked about how brave and resilient and faith-filled Thomas was, and he really was. There was a situation, in fact, it happened twice. There was a situation where Jesus wanted to go to a dangerous place, and all of his disciples says, no, 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 you're not going there. We'll, th that's dangerous. You're going to get you and us killed. Uh, let's don't do that. And all the disciples were against us. But Thomas, knowing the wisdom of Jesus, said, let's, he says, we got the wrong attitude. Let's go with him and let's just face the facts. We're going to die with him. I mean, he, he was ready to die for Jesus. So he shouldn't be known as doubting Thomas because of a bad moment. Um, but I tell you why the church goes on. I tell you why the mission goes on. I tell you why Jesus didn't stop, and I know I haven't finished the text yet, but I will. Um, there's a reason Jesus didn't stop here, because he knows that faith develops at different levels, different extents, and different people, and we're all on this journey from Sears to Dillard's together, and we wait for each other, and we walk with each other. Sometimes we have to slow down, sometimes we have to pause, but we're on the journey together, and he said, uh, he said, Lord, help my unbelief. And Jesus did not, I'm talking about the, the man with the son. Jesus did not rebuke him. He healed his son. And Thomas, Thomas had made a statement. He said, unless I can put my fingers in the nail prints and in the side that the spear caused, I will not believe. That was more than a bad afternoon. I will not believe. And Jesus came to him. And said, here, Thomas, here are my hands, here's my side. You said you have to do this or you won't believe. I want you to stop doubting. So here. And Thomas didn't need to do what he said he needed to do. He came to the point where he said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. You see, the journey of faith is not resolved. It's not helped very often. Sometimes it is, but it's not helped very often by you being able to see the proof that you need. The journey of faith is resolved because the Holy Spirit comes in and makes you convinced of something that doesn't need external evidence. Okay. Now, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you don't believe it, it's all right. I've still got it. If you're struggling, I'm still in control. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to follow all that I commanded you, and behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me tell you what I believe the Lord wants to do for us as we walk through these six lessons. The one today, as, as I've said, is that God's people come together to worship God together. We are going to be introduced to what I call the, uh, the Leah effect. Um, there are some things that happen when you begin to worship that don't happen until you begin to worship. Now, it's not that you just have this mind over matter where you say something over and over again until you begin to believe it. That's, that's just manipulation. And anything somebody can talk you into like that, somebody else can talk you out of. But there is what I call the Leah effect. Do you remember the story when I preached on the life of Jacob? Jacob fell in love, the, the dream girl of his life, the problem is that her name was not Leah, her name was Rachel. And he said that uh, I'll work for you for seven years to Laban, who was a, you know Laban, he was a great businessman and a thorough snake in the grass. But um, Jacob, see, you say, well, Jacob was a snake in the grass. Yeah, wh whatever we are, God tends to introduce us to people like we are so we can see what we really look like. Uh, that's, that's true in a lot of cases. Um, no, I'm not talking about your husband. I'm talking about <laughs> whoever. Um, and, and he said, I'll work seven years for Rachel. Now, the probability is that it was an agreement. You know, the first use of a credit card, he got her, you know, it was going to get her as his wife. Um, some think he worked seven years before they were married. We don't know. But at any rate, she cost him seven years. He wakes up the next morning. Now, how he didn't know it the night before, he might have been drunk. I, the tent might have been really dark. I, I don't know. Their voice might have sounded similar. But he woke up. And the Bible makes it a surprise. He woke up, and it, it, there's Leah. I mean, how do you marry the wrong girl? But Leah was a good wife. She loved her husband. And you know the story how he worked another deal for another seven years with the snake, I mean, with his father-in-law. And um, so he ended up working 14 years for these two wives who were sisters. And Leah, God heard her cry because Leah knew she was not loved like Rachel was. And in Jacob's defense, you can't control your feelings. It's not like it was something evil that he did. But where the evil was is that though he felt this, he didn't act on it. He, I mean, he didn't try to remedy it. He didn't try to mitigate it. He, it was clear that he preferred Rachel over Leah. And I think the lesson is, number one, don't marry two women. Uh, it was permitted at a time but as far as I can remember, every time it happened, there were always trouble. There was always trouble. And the law that had not come into effect yet, boy, I'm going deeper than I want to. The law that, that came into effect under Moses said, if you have two wives, not sisters, not sisters, because that adds an undue pressure and it's not going to work. Well, Moses probably wrote that thinking of Jacob, you know, and, um, But the way God was trying to balance it is that Rachel, who was the love of his life, could have no children. 
Now, God wasn't trying to destroy Rachel or punish her. God was trying to save a family. And, but Leah was very fertile, and she gave him child after child, son after son. And each of her sons were named with great expectations. I mean, I will name him this. His name means this because this is what my husband wants. And every time a, a child was born, now my husband will love me. Now my husband will treat me the way I ought to be treated. And when you read the story, it, it does not happen. Jacob does not change. And Leah stays in this perpetual state of rejection. But she came to a point where she had a child named Judah, which means praise. And this is what she said. This time, I will praise the Lord. I think what she was saying was, this hasn't worked, this hasn't worked, this hasn't worked, neither has this, this, or this. So I'm going to try another approach. I can't control my husband. I can't control what he feels for me. I have tried. I've given him everything that I can think of giving him. I've tried to be a, a good wife, a good lover, a good mother. I've tried to do everything. But this time, I'm just going to praise God. I'm going to put all of this into God's hands. Now, there wasn't an overnight remedy, but what you see in that story is that things begin to shift. And at the end of their lives, when Rachel had died and Leah had died, and now Jacob is dying, Jacob, and more than we can talk about today, said, bury me next to Leah. It was almost as though, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze him, but it was almost as though I didn't honor her in life but events have caused me to see that, so I will honor her in death. She will be the one that lays by me in death. I think Leah's lesson is this. We need to understand that some things begin to happen when we worship and understand the dynamic of worship that don't happen if we don't worship. I'm not talking to you. Now, this worship is an art form. It's not a science. Uh, you know, a science is you follow this, 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 and this, and this is always the result. Art's not like that. I, I love Vincent Van Gogh and his artwork, but you look at that, that, that that's, that's not science. It's art. It's art, and you either like it or you don't. It's, it's not scientifically predictable, but you like it or you don't. And worship is a lot like that. It's not a set of rules that a type A personality can just latch onto and say, oh, now all my problems are solved. Sometimes you need those rules. But worship, though it has general rules, it's more an art form where you are learning the ebb and flow of relationship. Everything that God wants us to understand about why God's people come to church flows out of relationship instead of out of formula. And it's something that we've got to, to, to truly, truly understand. Now, you've got the list there of why, why um, we come to worship together. Next week, we'll talk about how to be strengthened in Christ together. And you might be surprised, there's more verses about coming together to find strength than about any of the other reasons for coming in the, in the New Testament. Now, um, there are three key ideas in worshiping together. 
Now let me tell you what they are not because this is what the church world in general I think is latched on to. And especially we Pentecostals and Charismatics who are very exuberant in our worship. Um, you know, we, we call liturgical churches, we say they're dead, they don't know how to worship. They look at us and say, y'all are crazy. You're, you're a wildfire. And then we say, well, wildfire is better than no fire. And, you know, it just goes back and forth. And I think both groups probably don't understand the dynamic of worship. Um, in our venue, in our family tree, we think of worship as number one in emotion. Uh, Boy, I hope Pastor Glenn sings some good songs to say, I'm a little down in the dump. I need to get perked up. You know, it's, it's emotion. And um, uh, if it, it's not only emotion, but if you're not careful, it can become your uh, preference. Um, you can like a certain type of music, and that's okay. We all like certain type of music. You know, uh, <laughs> You know, some people grew up liking both types of music, you know, country and Western. And uh, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But um, we all have our preference. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with liking this song. There's nothing wrong with liking that song, this type of music, that type of music. I think every generation, I'm talking about secular music as well as religious music, every generation has their own music. There's nothing wrong with that until we begin to, to, to downplay every other generation's music, you know. We have to be careful about that because it's very easy to let something that elicits our emotion suddenly turn into a sacred preference. And you cut yourself off from everything God wants to do outside your preference. I had a man in a church one time and, and uh, he'd come up to me and said, Pastor, can I see the song list today? And I said, sure. And he'd say something like this. Uh, he'd either say, oh, that sounds good. And he'd stay in for worship. Or he would say, no, that's round mouth music. And I, I said, round mouth music? He said, yeah, when they sing opera and their mouths open wide, that's round mouth music. And he would not come in if we sang the wrong songs. And I know we love the Lord but he missed out on so much. You say, what if he's listening in on this today? He's in heaven. So no danger. But uh, he got so wrapped up into emotion, which led him into a preference. This kind of song moves me. This kind of song doesn't. And so he just wrote it off. He was not going to expose himself to it. And then if you're not careful, your emotion can play into preference and if you don't get a grip on your preference, worship will become nothing more than entertainment to you. Now, that's not the three key ideas, emotion, preference, and entertainment. That's just the three ideas of a lot of people. Uh, worship is emotion. Worship is my preference. Worship is entertainment. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't have to like every song. You don't have to like every style. You know, there are some, some Sundays when Pastor Glenn leads a worship, you know, you might say, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
And then you keep saying, thank you, Jesus. And your wife hits you. And then you say, what? Worship over? Oh. <laughs> and then there are other Sundays when you're saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And Pastor Glenn's singing a different type of song. And, and <laughs> music at last, you know. Nothing wrong with preference. But don't let preference rise above preference. Don't let preference rise above preference. What are the true three ideas? Well, here's number one. And loved ones, as with all of these six things, God is trying to take us from things that we understand or think we understand to things with a greater understanding in our lives, a greater power. The first word is the word increase. If you and I begin to understand worship, that we come together together to worship, we understand that we have come to church to worship. That's the first reason we come. You say, well, I don't really like the worship. I like the preaching. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But we don't come first for the preaching. We come first for the worship only because in order, that's the first thing we do. Now, you may be like me. When I was in seminary, I went to a church that was a fantastic church, a pastor that I was absolutely crazy about. They did so much right, but they would take 45 minutes to an hour on Sunday morning just to do stuff, to do everything that nobody wanted to hear. You know, pray for Sister Papoofnik's chickens. They started molting early and, you know, she's not getting the eggs that she wants. And I believe in prayer, but it was hard. And, and this, was, this kind of stuff was interspersed through the worship. Well, God's man of faith and power, with all the wisdom of my 23 years, I was in seminary, I was studying God's Word. If anybody ought to know God's Word, if anybody ought to know how to worship, it would be me and the seminary students. And I tell you what I started doing, it bothered me so much. I mean, it really bothered me. And you know the scary thing about it? Well, let me tell you what I did. During the first 45 minutes to an hour, I would go a couple of blocks down the street to Hamby's restaurant. And I would have breakfast and, and relax and read my Bible. I wanted to be spiritual, so I'd read my Bible and then after missing the first 45 minutes or so, I'd straggle into the church. And you know, the scary thing about it, because I love the, the pastor's preaching, the scary thing about it is that I honestly thought I was doing the will of God. I thought I was standing for what God wanted me to do. But you know what? I tell you what that did. It retarded my spiritual growth for years. And I'll tell you why. Seminary, even a good seminary, and I was at a good seminary, but even a good seminary is dry as the desert. I believe in seminaries, and for those of you who don't know me, I've been to several seminaries, I've got my doctorate, I believe in education. This is not a tirade against seminaries, but I want to tell you, if you are going someplace for spiritual life and vitality and for exciting, cutting-edge things of faith, don't go to seminary. If you go to seminary, you better tap into a church that gives you life because most seminaries won't. In fact, I, I, I truly believe most seminaries ought to be called cemeteries 
because they take the Word of God. I'm, I'm just telling you. They take the Word of God and they, it, it, the, the study of God's words, Word turns into higher and lower criticism. It turns into a forensic table of examination. And I want to tell you, after three or four years of seminary, it's, it's, you are dried up and shriveled unless you plug in to a good spiritual source. And you know what I was doing? I didn't even know it, but I, I needed, I needed that worship time that I thought had been polluted by too much stuff. And it had been, it had been, they don't do it anymore. And they didn't do it on Sunday night. So I, you know, went to worship on Sunday night. But you know what I began to realize? I began to realize that I was fighting battles that I had no way of winning because I had chosen the Word over worship. Now, I don't think you ought to choose worship over the Word. But I'm saying I didn't understand the dynamic power of worship. Let me take you a step further when we talk about this idea of increase. Um, let me take it and let me go another approach. Um, under increase, you see the word symphoneo. That is the Greek word that is used to describe our coming together, our agreeing in prayer. This thing called worship where we come together and worship involves music, worship involves prayer, worship involves intercession, worship can involve testimony. Worship is a much broader thing than, than music. In fact, I, I always thought that worship meant uh, slow songs and praise meant fast songs. But worship is so much bigger than that. When you understand worship, you understand there is an increase. Symphoneo, it's the word we get symphony from. And when we come together to worship, as beautiful as your voice may be, there's something about the worship of a symphony of believers that is greater than the worship of a single believer. That's what Jesus said, why Jesus said, when you come together, when two of you come together, he was not saying, he said, there I am in the midst of you. He was not saying that you got to get two before I'll show up. He was saying, even if there are only two, I'll be there in the midst of you. And he talked about prayer and Jesus taught this. There is something that happens when you come together that generally, now God can do anything he wants anytime he wants, any way he wants. But a general rule of the kingdom is when you come together, the more you have, there is exponential power and there is an exponential sense of his presence. Now, I know that you can say, well, God gives me power when I'm praying alone. Of course he does. He's God. Uh, I feel the presence of the Lord when I'm worshiping alone. Of course you do. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. We're not trying to make a case that it's this or this. We're trying to make a case that the great God who says, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll hear you even if you're praying alone. If you can learn to come together, that power becomes in, in, uh, exponentially more. I mean, you can, you can go and hear a guitar solo. You can go and hear, uh, you know, a tuba solo. You can go and hear a cymbal solo. But if you get in a situation 
where all of those instruments, even though their music is a little bit different, it's written a little bit different, it's headed toward the same end. And when you get all of those voices musically together, it produces something beautiful. And it's called a symphony. He said, when you come together to pray, it is a symphony. Now, it doesn't mean that God is limited to us coming together. If you are alone on a desert island, God's with you. If you are alone camping out, you know, at a state park and you want to call upon God, your praise can be beautiful and you can feel the presence of God. There's no question about that. But listen to the general principle that God lays out. He, he put it in Leviticus 26, 8 to the children of Israel. Five of you shall chase a hundred. He says, hey, if you got uh, 20 to 1 odds, you'll win. You'll win, even if there's only five of you. He said, if you have 100 of you, you'll put 10,000 to flight. The odds get exponentially more against you. But he said, the more you come together, the more there is anointing beyond mere numbers. And that's the way the church works. Worship makes us better together. Worship makes us stronger together. Now, let's go on to the second word. Now, that first word is increase. The second word is the word celebration. When we come together, we are celebrating. It is a party. What do you want to do when somebody is celebrating the day of their birth? You want a party. What do you do when you've won that horrendous legal battle that's had you in court for two years? You want to have a party. And whenever we worship God, we are calling people together to celebrate and basically on two fronts. We celebrate who God is and we celebrate what God has done. Now, this is not a 100% dis distinction, but generally, I think it's generally true, worship is a celebration of God's attributes of who God is. When, when we sing like we did earlier, how great thou art, that's worship. You say, well, of course it's worship. It's a slow song. No, no, no. It's celebrating who God is. You are great. Oh, Lord, my God. When, when I, an awesome wonder, consider all the worlds I have. Lord, you are great. It's because of who you are. But then we also celebrate what God has done, and that generally is called praise. It's, it's his actions. Now, is worship better than praise or praise better than worship? I don't think so. I just think they are different. And, and they, are, they are twins in the respect, not identical twins, but they are seen together, you know, how great they are. When I consider the wondrous world your hand has made, he said, I think about who you are and I think about what you've done. Worship and praise come together. But there are some songs that are just primarily praise. I, you know, I will sing unto the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. And we sing songs like nothing is too difficult for thee. Oh, Lord, our God. Great in power, great in deed, great in what you've accomplished. We celebrate what he's done. But we need to have the balance of worship and praise. And you say, well, I, Pastor, that's just nitpicking. No, I think there's a principle 
I want to touch on this just quickly. Psalm 103, 7, I know that there is parallelism, and especially in Hebrew poetry, like the Psalms and, and Proverbs, where you, know, you say something one, day, one way and then you want to say it another way. But I think there are some Psalms that have more than just the dynamic of parallelism. For instance, in Psalm 103, 7, he made known his ways to Moses. He made his deeds known to the sons of Israel. When you, if you know the history of that, Moses was always pursuing the presence of God. Israel had an invitation to draw close, and soon the invitation to draw close was removed because they didn't want to move closer than they were. They said, Moses, you, you go hear him, and, and Sunday when we come to church, you tell us what he said. There was an invitation for all Israel to come, but because of their resistance, God said, I'm setting a boundary around the mountain. Only Moses and those he selects will be able to come up here. Loved ones, there is a state of being that we tend to gravitate to, and it's where we just thank God for what he's done. And if he doesn't do what we want him to do, we don't sing. But there is also a Moses level. This is the Moses effect. We talked about the Leah effect. This is the Moses effect where Moses said, Lord, I want to know more than what you've done. I want to know who you are. Show me your ways, Lord. Show me your ways. You've shown me your deeds. You've shown me your actions, but show me your ways. Show me, uh, uh, yeah, your ways. Show me who you are. And God said to Moses, Moses, I speak to you as a man speaks to his friend. But if you saw me in my glory, it would kill you. It would overthrow all of your sensory capacity. He says, so I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by. And when I pass by, you'll be able to see me as I am passing the backside of God. In other words, God said, you won't see me in my full glory, but you'll see more than you've ever seen before. And that marked the heart of Moses. He said, Lord, I, I know what you've done. He had given them the story of creation, the, the, the story of the, the casting down of Satan. I mean, Moses knew what God could do. He had walked with them through the 10 plagues, he had seen the crossing of the Red Sea. He had seen the bitter water turn sweet. He had seen water from the rock. He had seen heavenly bread fall. He knew the works of God, but his heart was, now show me what you really are. Show me what you're really like. That's the difference between worship and praise. Now, worship is centered four, four ways that we can use worship give them to you very quickly. Worship occurs as liturgy. That, that means worship is systematic. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I love worship, whether it is a freewheeling, you know, we don't even know what we're going to do next. Or I love worship when it's very liturgical and very, very structured. I love liturgical worship because it, there's something majestic about it. But, but worship occurs as liturgy, systematic. The word worship comes from the old English word worthship. We worship because he is worthy. Okay? And there's nothing wrong with saying the Lord's Prayer together every week. 
You know, sometimes people say, well, that's just kind of, that's just kind of dry liturgy. Not for me. I mean, d does that not move you? Does that not remind you of the God we serve? But that's very liturgical. We do the Lord's Prayer, whether we're going to get anywhere near it in the text that day or not. Because we need liturgy. We need things to happen just because we need the structure. When Pastor Corey said a while ago in prayer, let everyone who agrees say amen, that's liturgy. That's liturgy. We are taught to say amen to make a formal agreement. We agree with this prayer. We agree with this statement. We agree with this declaration. Uh, so worship can occur as liturgy. We worship him because that's what we do. You know, I told the men one time, I said, you ought to tell your wife good morning. You love her every morning. And one of the guys came to me afterwards. I think he was joking, but he said, why do I have to tell her that again? I told her the day before and nothing's changed. <laughs> because it's your liturgy. A kiss goodbye in the morning is liturgy. A kiss good morning is liturgy. A kiss hello is liturgy. Uh, I love you is liturgy. That doesn't mean it's meaningless. Now you can let it be meaningless. But liturgy is, religion's not a bad thing. It's liturgy that says I'm going to keep on track. Because sometimes I might forget the track I'm running on. Worship results when deliverance occurs. Man, I read in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus um, saved them in the storm, the ship was about to go down. He said to the sea, peace be still. The Bible says that they were amazed at what he had done. And it says, and they worshiped him. Loved ones, as far as I can tell from the gospels, and I know not everything is in the gospels, but as far as I can tell, that's the first time the disciples worshiped him. It's when he delivered them from certain death. So liturgy uh, sparks worship, deliverance sparks worship. Worship is also sparked when we pray a prayer petition. The kingdom of Assyria had taken down the northern kingdom of Israel. Now they're trying to take down the southern kingdom of Judah. They are besieging the city of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophets says, this is how we must pray. And part of their prayer was remembering who God is and remembering what he has done. And they said, Lord, because this is who you are and because this is what you've done, do it again for us. In Acts chapter 4, when the disciples were told they could no, no longer preach or teach in the name of Jesus, the church came back together <coughs> and they prayed the same pattern prayer that Hezekiah had taught the children of Judah to pray. And in Acts chapter 4, they prayed again, Lord, this is who you are. This is what you've said. This is what you've done. This is the mess we're in. Now, will you please do what you've done based on who you are? And there are times that you don't even have a precedent. You don't know what to do. Abraham, get away. I am going to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. Their wickedness is great. I'm going to destroy them. Abraham does a quick calculation. He thinks of, his, of Lot, Lot's wife, their two daughters. And then uh, the text is a little vague. His sons-in-laws or potential sons-in-laws. <laughs> he, he comes up with it, at least 10. 
And he says, Lord, I know there are 10 family members I have there. And he says, Lord, are you going to destroy the city if there are dozens of righteous? They may be in the minority, but are you going to destroy the, number, the city? And what if we can find 50? And God says, if you can find 50, I'll spare the city. And he goes to 40, to 30, to 20. And then he, he comes to the point where he stops at 10, because probably because he thinks he's got it covered with 10. <laughs> but this is what Abraham said. It's phenomenal. He said, are you going to destroy everyone if there are some righteous people there? And he says this, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham had spent his whole life learning about God. He didn't have any precedent of, well, you spared Los Angeles or you spared New York because of X number of people. You owe me, Lord, to save Sodom and Gomorrah. If the, as, no, he had no precedent. He had no, uh, I mean, he knew that God would judge when he needed to judge. The flood was an example of that. But he said, Lord, I may not know all I need to know, but I know this, you are a God of justice and you are a God of mercy. Lord, I am appealing to your mercy. Spare the city if these number of people can be found. And God said, all right, if you can find 10, I will. And God, who is a God of justice and mercy, 10 were not found. Only four were willing to flee the city. But God, even though he wouldn't spare the city, he spared those four. You see, Abraham touched the heart of God, not because he knew what God had done, nearly as much as he knew what God was like. And that's what we're after when we look at this. Um, it's so our petitions should be based on worship and prayer. And worship is part of personal communion too. Paul wrote this. He said, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, some scholars think he was saying, all of you need to talk to each other this way in songs and hymns and, uh, and, and psalms, spiritual songs. Others say, no, he was saying, you speak to yourself. You, this is your own inner voice singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. This is what Paul said, whether, however you interpret it. He was saying that you cannot always control the atmosphere. You cannot always control the culture, but you can control your atmosphere. You can control your breathing space. And loved ones, I, I want to tell you, those of you that have embraced the idea of the name it and claim it kind of thing, the word of faith that says, you know, whatever I confess is what's going to be. I don't think that's true for theological reasons, biblical reasons, or practical reasons. But I tell you what I do believe. I do believe you can control your atmosphere. I, 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 I can't just confess something and it's going to be. Uh, I, I don't believe that. I mean, there are exceptions, but that's another sermon for another series, for another era, for another decade. <laughs> But I tell you what I do believe, I can speak to myself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I can remember what God has done. I can remember who God is, and it will change the air I breathe. It'll change the air in my home. It'll change the air in my church. It'll change the air in your car. 
It'll change the air, the air in the gym. I mean, you and I have the ability to bring worship and praise into the situation to change our atmosphere. Now, here's the third uh, uh, thing. Um, my word, this thing gives me too much room. We're talking about increase. We're talking about celebration. Let's do this. If I'm done, I'll turn it over. Worship is part of personal communion. We said that. Here's the third word. It's the word foundation. Now there's, there's increase. And um, the, the second dynamic we talked about, um, there was increase, then there was celebration. And the third word is the word foundation. This is where we really begin to understand why our worship is important, okay? Okay, I worship, and, and, and understand this, worship involves singing, it involves praying, it can involve testifying, it can involve prophesying. Worship is bigger than the song selection, although song selection is very important. Uh, it's about a celebration. When we worship, everything that we do is not about our preference or our entertainment. Um, uh, you know, it's about exalting him, remembering who he is, what he has done. We celebrate it. It's increasing. Everything God wants to do is, again, it's not a hard and fast rule, but generally speaking, the more there are, the more there is, generally speaking. Um, number three, and somebody asked me after first service, they said, Pastor, I, I usually listen at home, and there's not, a, uh, there's not a singer in our family. I, I, I forget how many is, he said was in their family, and I probably shouldn't say. He said, but when, when we try to sing along with the live stream, it's, we, we feel like we may be blaspheming the Holy Spirit. <laughs> We, we don't do it well. So, so, so singing is not a strong thing for us. I said, get alone with the Lord and develop your own song service. I said, do it on the way to work. You don't have to sing here for it to be worship. You can sing here. Just be sure that it gets done. Be sure it gets done. When I was um, in elementary school, a prophetic lady, she was considered a prophetess. Uh, she looked at me, she called my mom over and she said, Sister Chitty, I see something on this boy. And she said, he has the heart of a worshiper. And I honestly thought that meant my mom was the worship leader. I thought that meant, oh, I'll be a worship leader. And so I, I did everything I knew how to do to prepare to be a worship leader. I always loved music, but you know what? I've never been a worship leader. I can count on one hand the number of times I've led a song of worship or whatever. Uh, not that I don't want to do it. I love it. I just don't have a lot of ability. I have a very limited range. And so that means I might do good with these songs, but these other songs, you know, they ain't going to happen because I, because I, I lack ability. But I went decades, I, I was a grown man with children before I began to understand what that lady was saying. I thought she was saying I was going to be a worship leader, but I've never been a worship leader. And it was nagging me in the back of my mind. Am I missing something God's trying to do in my life? 
But you know what I began to realize decades later? I mean, it's, I was, had been here for years before I began to realize it. God showed me how worship had been an instrumental part of what he's done in my life, of deliverance, of victories, of spiritual warfare. I want to tell you, worship has been at the heart of everything God has done in me and through me. But it's been when I was with him. It's when I was with him, not when I was in front of a congregation. Do you understand where I'm going? You've got to find your place of worship. You've got to find your place of worship. See, Pastor Glenn, I don't know if Pastor Glenn's in here, but I, I have such confidence in Pastor Glenn. I, I don't travel as much as I used to with the, the restrictions and masks and stuff, but I used to travel a lot to conferences and things like that. And I'd, I'd come home and I'd, I'd tell Ramona and I'd, I'd tell Glenn too, tell the other guys, I said, I know that I went to a conference of the best speakers, the best worship leaders, but I don't see anything going on in those churches that's any better than what Pastor Glenn does right here. And I mean that. I really do. Glenn, are you in here? He's probably backslidden. Oh, no, there he is. I want you to give Glenn a hand. He's phenomenal. He's phenomenal. And uh, his worship teams, I think of Shelly, and I shouldn't even start mentioning names, but all of them are phenomenal. They're phenomenal. But yeah, for them too. But can I tell you something? I'm almost as phenomenal as he is. But I'm talking about in worship. But I think I might be the only one that likes it. But, but, you, you know I'm making a joke to try to make my point. My point is worship is, is phenomenally important in my life, but I can never fill the venues that Glenn fills. I could never do what he does. But you know what? I don't need to because God has put that platform of worship at this place in my life, not this place in my life. And I know Glenn, I know Glenn has it in both places of his life. But I'm, what I'm trying to say to you is you are a great worshiper, whether you realize it or not. You just got to find the right stage. You just got to find the right stage. Now, let me talk about these foundations and we're done. The last word that we really need to understand about worship is foundations. God has put several things in our life. Right now, I'm convinced there are three there may be others, and I think there are, I, I think there are probably some others that are almost foundational. But I think these three things are foundational. The Sabbath, the tithe, and prayer. You say, well, why do you think those are so foundational? Because the way God says to handle the Sabbath, the tithe, and prayer makes no sense to the natural mind but God says without it you cannot know everything I have for you all of these things are designed to help us know that we are more with God than we can ever be without him you see I didn't backslide by not going to worship 
at my church in Missouri, but I stunted my growth. I really did. It took me years to realize the error of my way and that I needed to enter into worship, whether it appealed to my energy or my entertainment or my preference or my emotions. It took me years. And God says, if you can understand the power of these three things, if you can understand, if you can press back the, the fact that I'm telling you if you want more, okay, let me take this away. I don't like that. To me, more means more. <laughs> to God, so often more means less. Just ask Gideon. And I love, I believe it was Jonathan who said to his armor bearer, I think it was Jonathan, he said, you know, it doesn't matter to the Lord if his hand brings deliverance by many or by few. And then they performed this strange God-empowered conflict where Jonathan and his armor bearer killed dozens of enemy soldiers. Jonathan said, it doesn't matter if God uses a lot or if God uses few. Loved ones, God is in the business of putting every one of us in places where we are outnumbered and outgunned, outfinanced, outresourced. Yeah, God just taunts me. No. No, he's not taunting you. He's trying to release something in your heart and it is the realization that whether it's few or many, the battle is in the Lord's hands. And you're in the Lord's hands. You see, let's take the Sabbath for instance. Now we know, and I know, I know there are people that disagree with this, but we don't have time to take their points. And I understand why they do, but I, I don't agree. But there, but there are some that say, well, the Sabbath was never rescinded and Saturday is, is the Sabbath. And we need to go back to the Old Testament observation of the Sabbath. And we need to start worshiping on the Sabbath instead of Sunday. Um, I, I, th that is one of the most easily dismissed arguments that comes from that camp. We know and, and in the book Essentials, there's, there's two or three chapters on why we come together on the Lord's Day. But I want to also tell you this. We don't have to come together on Sunday. We could come together on another day. There was a reason the church began to worship on the Lord's Day. Uh, again, it's another subject for another time. But Paul gave them permission to do that. And he said, uh, every day is the Lord's Day for a child of God. And we have just followed 2,000 years of tradition. But you know what? Back in the Carter administration when we had the energy crisis, they were saying that we may stop all unnecessary travel on Sunday. And churches went ballistic. Said, you're just trying to keep us out of church. And I don't know what the motive of that administration was. I don't know. But I will tell you this. I, my, my thought was, yeah, they're just trying to squash church. You know what my pastor said? He said, well, okay, then we'll worship another day. We'll worship another time. And one of the elders or deacons in that church said, but, but that, this is the Lord's day. He said, yeah, it's the Lord's day, but we can worship on Thursday. 
we can worship on Tuesday and Wednesday night. He said, we're not a slave to a day. We are a slave to the Lord. Well, but this is what the Sabbath was about. See, the Sabbath was not about you not flexing your muscle. The Sabbath was not designed to rest, meaning you can't do any work. See, I, I grew up in a setting that if, you're, if your grass was over your head, you don't ever cut it on Sunday. God will kill you for picking up sticks, you know, is the way I grew up. We couldn't play ball on Sunday. Well, my parents let me. They, they weren't that strict, but a lot of people were. We had some families that wouldn't undress from their Sunday clothes all Sunday, you know, because it was the Lord's Day. and It's not a day for play. It's a day for worship. Um, and and I, I do think that the Sabbath is a day for worship, and I think you need a Sabbath in your life. But listen to me. The Sabbath was not given to Israel so they couldn't enjoy life. This is what the Sabbath was given to Israel for. God said, God spoke to a nation. They were very agricultural. They were a generally a poor nation, um, uh, at least the common people. And he said, most of you work from day to day, you, you know, from, from hand to mouth. If you want to eat Friday, you need to work Thursday. If you want to have food, you need to work. And, and for the majority of Israel, there were exceptions, there were different classes, but for the majority of Israel, if they stopped working, they ran a very good risk of not eating. And you know, can you imagine how radical it was for God to say, okay, don't work on the Sabbath. And they said, uh, but we would like to eat the next day. And God said, don't, don't work. And, and you see, you remember the Sabbath years uh, when you came on the seventh year, you couldn't plant on fields that had been used. When you came to the Sabbath or the, the year of Jubilee, everything you had built up had to go back to original owners. It, it, God's playing e economic games with them, it seemed like. But all this is what was behind it all. I want you to know that if you'll take out of the seven days you have, if you'll take one and give it to me and trust me, he says, you remember your ancestors in the wilderness? I told them no gathering on the seventh day of the manna. But I told them they could gather twice as much the day before. If they tried that any other time, it didn't work. He says, I want you to know that you can do more giving me one out of seven days than not giving me your time. It, it does not make sense. He says, you will work better on six days with a day off than you will seven days. It doesn't make sense to the natural mind. But God said, if you can learn to give me worship in its place, I'll be sure to see that your other six days are as productive as they need to be. Um, I, I, you know, and I hear it all the time. Well, Sunday's my only day off. I don't want to go to church. Well, just depends on how important the Lord's provision is for you. The same was true of the tithe. God says of the tithe, he says, I want you to understand that you will be better off with 
than you will be with 100%. I am ashamed of this, but I went through a period in my life when I didn't tithe. I had such incredible debt and I had such incredible burden. I said, Lord, nothing personal. I just know you don't call me with a debt collector's call if I can't pay my tithe. These people call. I said, Lord, I'm just going to, just for a year, I'm going to not pay my tithe and then I'll, I'll make it up. I'll, I'll make it up. It was the worst year of my life financially. I had more money, but solved fewer problems. And you know what? I will ever be thankful the Lord let my whole economic world collapse. Because I'll tell you what it taught me. It taught me that God is able to deliver, whether by many or by few. 90% works better for me than 100%. I had to learn that. I had to learn that. I think every Christian needs to learn that. You say, well, tithing is Old Testament. No, tithing is, predates the Old Testament law. Uh, I, 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 I think people tithe. That, that's why Abraham understood what the tithe was long before Israel had the law. People understood worship long before they were commanded how to do it in the law. People, people had uh, uh, um, these things in place long before they were codified in the law of Moses. No, God said, hey, listen to me. Give me a day and I'll make your other days prosperous. He says, give me a token of 10%. And I'll make the rest of it go further than it would under any other conditions. Now, this is not a message. You know, so if somebody that they're not a part of this church, they're in another state, a good friend of mine, you, you don't know who he is. But he said, you know, my wife and I have been talking. We thought if we could just not do the tithe for a year, we could have this, this, and this. Just get a jump start, and then we'd be okay. And I said, well, I said, looks like you read my testimony. I said, I told the Lord the same thing. And I told it to him I, just before I had the worst year of my life. Virtually lost everything economically. I said, you, you need to focus this way. It's what I had to do. I said, you need to focus on not what I will have if I quit paying my tithe. You need to focus on what I lose if I quit paying my tithe. It's like having angelic protectors. And you say, well, you know, I'll be okay without the angelic protectors. No. I don't want to try it. It's the same thing is true of worship. Loved ones, listen to me. I believe that worship is about to be put on a pedestal, but it's going to be done so by the Lord. Now, we'll never be a church where we don't preach, where we just worship. I think there are things that happen when the Word is preached that never happen in worship. But I also think there are things that happen in worship that don't happen in preaching. The first reason God's people come together is to worship, and that's where we want to start. We want to know that we can worship anywhere, anytime. God can do anything, anytime with any number of people. It's His choice. He may give you a Gideon's 300 or, or he, may, he may bring in a host of angels. I remember, I remember preaching one time about, about how 
the Lord, you know, sent a host of angels to wipe out the Assyrians and 185,000 of them because God sent his angels. And then I was reading the text one day and I realized he sent his angel, singular. That's the beautiful thing about angels. You don't need to wait for them to gather. You only need one. Here are the Christian life lessons. Worshiping together is an investment. I share my time, my talent, my treasure, my testimony. You know, we've said this before. There are three ways to use up your life. Number one, you can waste it. Number two, you can spend it. That just means whatever comes in goes out. Just break even. But you can also invest your life. And when you invest your life, you always hope to get back more than you put in. A successful investment says, this is what I put in, but this is what I get back. I want you to know worshiping together is that. That can be said of all worship, but if you want an exponential return on your worship, come together. If it's, if it's possible, if you can. Christian life lesson number two, little as much if God is in it. You say, well, but, I did, but that's right, Pastor, but the more we have... Well, that's true in some ways. Do you know that the greatest time of growth in the assemblies of God was during the Great Depression? When there was almost no money, when churches were closing hand over fist, it was during that time that people brought nickels and dimes to the church and God blessed it and they began to buy storefronts which began to be renovated which turned into churches. Do you know that in the depression when they said that churches will not survive, they said churches will not survive. Do you know that it was during the depression, it's our greatest period of growth in our history. And this is what our slogan was. The assemblies of God, we build eight churches a week, one every day of the week and two on Sunday. And that's what we did for over a decade. You say, well, well, there must have been something going on. Yeah, there was. People began to understand little is much if God is in it. Less if, is more. Number three, less is more if God orders the less. I've told you about the Silver Eagle, so I won't retell the story in detail. But if you'll allow me, say, two minutes, I'll give you the gist of it. It was a dream the Lord gave me back probably, uh, probably 10 years or so now. We were in this sanctuary, I know that. And it was a time on the outside, uh, you know, in the culture. Um, it was a setting of great difficulty. It was a time of despair. It was even a time of economic depression. The church was flooded with worship. The church was packed with people. But I knew when I saw me and the pastors and some of the elders standing over there uh, by the door, uh, just, just inside, um, I knew that we could not do everything we wanted to do. Uh, you, you, you are the most generous people imaginable. You always give to special offerings. You give to missions. You give for the support of the church. Uh, and I remember in the dream, it was an odd thing thinking because of the outside economy, 
We can't do everything we want to do. So we looked at letters. This is from this missionary. This is from this missionary. This is from another missionary. And I would look and I would try to listen for the voice of the Spirit that said, uh, it seemed good to the Holy Ghost in us. And we'd say, we can do this. We can't do this or we shouldn't do this. This is the direction of the Lord. And there was a money box. And when we said, this is the direction of the Lord, we'd reach down and we'd pull out enough money to do it. And it was coins. We'd pull out enough money to do it and we'd pass it off to somebody and they would go on the project. It was nothing like I'd ever been a part of. And over to the side, uh, just maybe this side of, of um, I can't see who our guard is, but this side to the left uh, of the guard, there was an angel of the Lord. It was an angel of the Lord I've seen in several dreams and he just, he watched the way we did business. And we came to something that we knew the Lord wanted us to do, but we, we were out of money. We had some, but not enough to do the project. The angel of the Lord came over and put in my hands um, uh, coins that I didn't realize. They were solid coins like silver or gold, but I didn't recognize the coins. And I said, I looked at the angel and I said, what are these or what is this? And he said, this is the currency of heaven. And in my hand, these things lost their form and became pliable like rubber. And then I saw them turn into American silver eagles. And he said, this is the currency of heaven. I said, what, what are they becoming? Are these silver eagles? What are they becoming? He said, the currency of heaven becomes whatever you need whenever you need it. Whatever you need, whenever you need it. And then I realized as I watched this in my hand, those unknowable coins that turned to rubber, that turned to silver eagle, suddenly I held in my hand exactly what we needed for that trip. You see, loved ones, some things happen when we're willing to commit to the worship principle. Again, put music over to the side. But when we understand that like the Sabbath, God can do more in six days than he does in seven. Have you ever read Genesis and said, man, God, if you had just gone one more day, if you'd not rested on the seventh day, I, I got all kinds of things, ideas I'd like to share with you. Nope. God said, when I'm involved, six is better than seven. Like the tithe, God says, nine is better than ten. Like worship, God says, you think you understand good worship, but if you'll do it my way, if you'll do it my way, more will happen with less if you'll do it my way. See, there's going to be a new anointing on our worship, but it's not going to be an anointing on worship that takes away from anything else. We are going to learn that in the place of less is when we discover more. Now, don't get excited. I'm not going to preach shorter. I'm not asking Glenn to sing less. I'm talking about there's a whole lot less expectations I have concerning the kingdom of God than I've ever had before. You say, well, you ought to expect great things. Well, that's not the problem. The problem is I mingled God's great things with my great things. And my great things just turning ugly. They're just turning ugly. 
I tell you what, it's time. Some of us need to take a look in the mirror. I, I, I was talking to my wife. I, I just finished getting dressed and combing my hair. And I said, honey, I said, just this year, just this year, I think I look like I've aged five years. And that, what she's supposed to say, is, oh, no, no, you, you look younger. Well, she looked at me and said, no, maybe two. <laughs> I don't know if two years and nine months is any better than five years and nine months. I don't know. But I tell you, my expectations are getting old and wrinkled, floppy and saggy. So God says, let's just move that over here. And let's focus on this. Hey, it's a new era. It's a new day. I want these guys to bring us back into the presence of God. This is the way we want to do the altar service. As always, if you're listening online and you want to accept Jesus, as your Savior, or you need prayer, call the number that will be on your screen. But we're going to just open the altars. This will be dismissal. I mean, you can go if you need to. That's not a problem. But we want to just, the time that we have left, we want to just say, come. If you can, just come. Just come into the presence of God. You say, well, yeah, if I can get to the prayer teams, maybe they can give me counsel. Sometimes you need counsel. Sometimes you just need worship. That's why we're not asking the prayer teams to wait for you to come. That's why we're asking the prayer teams to go and just lay hands on you because we're learning. We're learning that little is much if God is in it. And if I can just get in his presence. Guys, don't misunderstand me. Nothing wrong with prayer of this type or that type. Nothing wrong with counsel. But loved ones, we've got, to, we've got to move to what God is saying instead of what man is saying.